Turn with me to James 1, if you would, this morning. So we're kind of honing in on the last couple of verses of James 1 here. Last time we talked about the first part of what I call pure religion, James' definition of pure religion, and and we determined that James had a concern that we would... uh, we would not be hit hypocritical, and we looked at why hypocrisy is such a detriment to to the purity of our religion. And there's two other parts here that James talks about. We're going to look at one more of those today, and that's in verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So we have two other two other things here. We have visiting fatherless and widows in their affliction and keeping himself unspotted from the world. Now, I, I would tend to believe that this verse and the verse prior to that, uh, speaking about hypocrisy, I, I wouldn't say that this these three things necessarily encompass every nuance of true religion. But I do believe that it puts down a pretty basic fundamental framework that um, that we somewhat struggle with maybe we we struggle a bit with um, authenticity you know uh, freedom from hypocrisy perhaps we struggle with seeing needs around us and uh, we we know that throughout the history of the church uh, that 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 tension of keeping oneself spotless from the world has always been a struggle and so on. But I, 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 mean, I am interested, when you think about when, when Jesus was questioned about, now what is the, what is the most important commandment? He said, well, he said it's, it's to love God and to love your brother. And I think that is somewhat what we see here in verse 27. Uh, a person that loves God um, will be quite interested in keeping himself unspotted from the world, and a person that loves his brother will be interested in the fatherless and the widows and their affliction. So... It's interesting that it seems like those two things are are stated just in a bit of a different way. However, I'm interested in the order. Is there any any um, is there any significance in the order that James states this? You know, he he states the thing of, of visiting fatherless and widows first, and then he says, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Um. I'm not sure I don't want to make a, a big deal out of order or anything. Uh, but a couple of things that came to my mind. I do think that perhaps, speaking of tension, there could perhaps be even a tension between those two things. Um, is, is there, it seems to me if you look at the broad grand scheme of um, church history and even church churches and their goals and so on, even in our day to day, it, it feels like that, that we can skew one way or the other pretty easily. You know, we can either be laser focused on keeping ourselves unspotted from the world and at the expense of the, of the, uh, interest in others, or we can be interested in the, the affairs around us, the, the fatherless and widows as the verbiage is here, and maybe not quite so interested in, in the other parts of, um, of this verse of the uh, of the spots of the world, 
I'm not sure about that, but it seems like perhaps there would be a tension that we'd have to keep there. However, if you look carefully at this verse, if your Bible's like mine, the word and is probably italicized, all right? So because that's in italics, if I can say this word, uh, that means that in the original uh, writing, that word will not be there. The translators added that to make it read better in their opinion. But now let's just read that verse without that word and. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, when you read it that way, it almost seems like the two build upon the other. And and so my thought began to turn this direction. Could it be that the more interest we take in the the people that are more unfortunate than us, perhaps, or the the issues around us, the fatherless, the widows, the vulnerable, the needy population in our midst and around us, the more interested we are in that and the more we share God's heart on that, could it be that the second part becomes more attainable? I don't know. I'm not sure that I'm willing to hypothesize long on that at all. But it feels like the two build on each other if you take the word and out of there. So we'll leave it at that. I'm not sure. But um, it is an interesting thought process. I would like to spend some time here this morning just uh, bouncing through the Old Testament, noting how many times this comes up over and over and over again that God is so interested in um, in the terminology fatherless and widows. That comes up many times in the Old Testament, but in our New Testament, this is the only time it comes up in that particular way. And if you remember with me, I said originally that James is likely the oldest book of our New Testament, and it was written to the 12 tribes, to the to the Jews that were scattered abroad, the, the Christian Jews. And so the Christian Jews would have been very familiar with this term, fatherless and widows. That would have been terminology that they had been very used to um, being of the Jewish um uh, race and and uh, and God's people and, and familiar with the Old Testament. If you want to, you can you can turn with me to Exodus 22. This is the first mention in the, in the Old Testament where this fatherless and widows uh, thing comes up. The, these uh, this particular verbiage, and I would just like to read it a few verses here um, as it's written. In Exodus 22:21. And this is God instructing, just giving various instructions about how they're supposed to conduct themselves. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger. And see, that's another, that's another, um, a thing you'll find up, um, turning up in passages where fatherless and widows, uh, are talked about. There's also the strangers and the poor that kind of go in that as well. Thou shalt not vex a stranger, nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall wax hot. 
and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. And then I'm just going to read verse 25 yet. If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as a usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. Uh, that's a that's a, another subject, but it's also interesting to me uh, the numbers of times that that turns up in the Old Testament. This whole idea of oppression by charging usury to uh, to the poor or to the people of the land. All right, so we'll leave that. That's that's kind of sets a framework. Now turn to uh, Deuteronomy ten. This is a a much more lengthy. Um, Address here, as we, if you remember, the the book of Deuteronomy is um, is a is one big sermon by Moses before Moses dies and things are handed off to Joshua, and and Moses, you know, he's he has a lot to say. It's a big book. And we're going to read verses uh, in Deuteronomy. Let's see, Deuteronomy ten. We're going to read verses twelve to twenty two. And now, Israel, what does the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. So if you just stop there and just consider that, these instructions are what the Lord expects of his people. If you love him, if you fear him, if you serve him with all your soul, um, pay attention. This is these are these are some instructions you should be uh, you should be interested in. Verse 14, behold the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord thy God and the earth also with all that is therein. So another basic principle he sets out. He said not only are you my people, not only do you love me, hopefully you love me in this way, but I want you to remember that everything you see is mine. All right, just get that in your head. The earth, the heavens, everything is mine. All right? Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and he chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Now, stop and think about that a little bit. God is telling the people, he said, you really had nothing in this. I chose you because that was my decision. Uh, you know, you think about it. God could have chosen uh, a, a whole different uh, race of people to work with. He could have. He, he, it, was, it was his choice who he chose to work with. And if you follow that lineage back to the Abraham, the Isaac, the Jacob, you know, that, that whole, the Jewish ancestry... Um, God says even in different, different places that, you know, I chose Jacob over Esau. You know, I did these things. These were my choices. And these are, these are concepts that are somewhat difficult for us to understand, but it's, God simply states it here. It was my idea to choose you as the people I wanted to work with. So he's kind of putting things in perspective. He's like, I own everything and you're my people because that's my choice. So think about that. So considering all that, verse 16, the instruction is, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. Now, we understand that too. The, the, the whole circumcision thing was the, um, the outward sign that these people were God's people. And 
And so people did that. I mean, and that was right and proper. But God wanted it to go further. He said, I want you to deal with your heart. And he's saying all this because the instructions that are forthcoming, if the foreskin of the heart was not dealt with, if they um, were Jews only outwardly, if they did not have a change in their heart, a different heart than those around them, these um, these instructions that were to come were going to um, make no sense to them. It was not going to penetrate their heart. Verse 17, For the Lord your God is... God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty, a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor takes reward. He doth execute judgment of the fatherless and widow, and loveth the stranger, and giving him food and raiment. All right, so if you stop and consider that a little bit, he establishes what a, what a, an almighty God he is. He's like, you know, you can't grasp the, my greatness, my mightiness, my terribleness. But what does this mighty and terrible God do? He said he loves the strangers and the fatherless. He does not regard persons. In other words, he doesn't look down upon the people of the earth and make decisions based on their monetary value, on their looks, on their clothes, uh, on their standing in society. That's not the way God judges things. And then he goes on to, to list how that uh, he executes fair judgment on the fatherless, widow, stranger, etc. And basically what he's saying is that um, in society, uh, then and probably as much today, your social standing um, can sometimes not be real conducive to how you are treated by others. And God's saying, that's not the way I am. And in fact, if you would go back to Deuteronomy 24, I'm just going to read you a couple of verses there while we're at these verses. It says, Moses comes back and nails, drives this nail one more time in verse 17 of Deuteronomy 24. Thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. Cursed be he that perverteth judgment of the stranger, fatherless and widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Everyone's supposed to agree to this. This is not where we want to be. Okay, verse 19. Love ye therefore the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. Him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave and swear by his name. He is thy praise, he is thy God, and he hath done for thee these great and terrible things which thine eyes have seen. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons, and now the Lord thy God has made thee as the stars of the heaven for multitude. Basically, verse 19 is saying, because of who you are, because I what I have done for you, because of who I am, and because you say you serve me, your attitude toward these fatherless and these widows should be exactly the same as mine. It should spur you on to do what I do. And remember, at one time you found yourself here. At one time you were slaves, and that hasn't been at, at the time of this. Um, at the time of this sermon of Moses, that had not been that many years before. Now, granted, by the time Moses is uh, giving these words to the children of Israel. Many of the people that had actually been slaves, I, I guess I'll take that back, all of the people 
save Joshua and Caleb, um, would have died in the wilderness. So he's talking to a new generation that their fathers and mothers had been slaves in Egypt. They no longer were. But time has a way of erasing memories very nicely, doesn't it? All right, so we're going we're gonna to leave that. But <clears throat> again, this is just another scripture that speaks specifically to this. Now, if you want to um, just um, sit back and listen, I have a few more scriptures I'm going to read to you uh, in the Old Testament that speak to this. Leviticus 19.9 And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 24, 19. When thou cuttest down thy harvest in thy field, and forgettest a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go fetch it again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thy hands. Now let's just stop and consider what those verses tell us for a minute. Again, God is is giving pretty clear instruction that he wants the poor of the land to be looked out for. But it is some interest to me that the way they, part of the way they should be looked out for is that if I'm a farmer or a, or a, I have a vineyard here or whatever, that I go out and I do my picking and I get the grapes and all this or I, I do my, my uh, harvest in my wheat field. But I'm not real uh, careful that I get... You know, every grade, if, if there's a little in the, you know, if I miss a little or whatever, um, that's for the, that's for the, for the poor. And I'm not supposed to go out and, after, you know, two weeks later and get those grapes that maybe, uh, ripened a little later. I'm supposed to leave that there for the, uh, for the poor of the land to have. And, um, you know, if, if I forget a sheaf, you know, if I, if I'm out there and I'm harvesting and, and we're all done and we're going in and I look back and I see a sheaf there, I'm not supposed to turn around and get it. I'm supposed to leave that there. Well, now, why was that? Well, I think it was twofold. Um, number one, it was teaching the people not to be greedy, okay? So there was that part of it, the, the greed factor. You know, you were blessed abundantly. Uh, you don't have to go out and scour the field one more time. The other thing it was doing, that while it was helping the poor... It wasn't giving it to them. There was still blessing in the poor and the fatherless and the widow, etc., in working. There was a blessing in that. And that, that comes down to a basic fundamental value that um, I hope we understand that. I think I'm preaching to the choir. But, you know, working is a, is a great thing. And it was actually good for even even these poor people, even though they didn't have much, to go out and literally... Go through that field as well for their stuff. And, and we all know this, but that's the breakdown of the welfare system in our land. People won't work. They don't have to work. They can stay home and they can collect their, their things, um, and they don't have to do a thing for it. And that's not, that is not a godly way of thinking about things. And it's, um, it's, it's just a bad idea. And, it, and I'm glad we have the book of Ruth because the book of Ruth uh, portrays so nicely how in in a world of the Israelites' time back in those days, how that worked out so nicely. Uh, 
this this unselfish man Boaz that was more than happy to be really sloppy about his harvest so that the poor of the land could come out and not just get the gleanings they could they could do pretty well in his fields and um, it's it's just a beautiful story well if you go into the prophets uh Isaiah Jeremiah Ezekiel uh some of the major prophets it is of some interest to me that uh uh part of the reason there's a couple of different things that happened there, but part of the reason that the children of Israel were judged and taken into captivity was because of their neglect and their mistreatment of the of the downcast of society. And I'm going to read you a few verses here. Isaiah 1, verse 23, Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loveth gifts and followeth after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them. All right, now that's just cherry-picking a verse out of a much larger context, but it's obvious that this was this was a big problem to, to God because of the way um, these people were being treated. Jeremiah 22.1, Thus saith the Lord, Go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O King of Judah, thou sittest, that sittest upon the throne of David, thou and thy servants and thy people that enter in by these gates. Thus saith the Lord, execute ye judgment and righteousness, and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, and do no wrong, do no, no, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood in this place. For if ye do this thing indeed, then shall there enter in by the gates of this house kings, sitting upon the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, he and his servants and his people. But if ye will not hear these words, I swear by myself, saith the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. And I don't have to add much to these these passages. They're very self-explanatory. Um, part of the reason the punishment came apart upon these these people was because there was there was not the interest in the welfare of the vulnerable population that God was so interested in okay now we're going to turn to the new testament let's turn to matthew 25 here another very uh, well it's a very well known scripture but it it perhaps does us good to just look at this a little bit Chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, and the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto those on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, now let's notice the next several verses. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee unhungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? 
And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in naked, and ye clothed me not sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they... Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to the least of these, ye you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Um, very easy to understand, isn't it? And yet, um, very sobering. You know, the, these people that it says were cast into everlasting punishment, they ask the question, when did we see this? Um, you know, there, there could have been several reasons. Perhaps they weren't aware. Um, that's possible, I guess. Perhaps they saw and they, they didn't feel an obligation uh, for some reason. Or perhaps... They uh, felt legitimately excused um, from helping because they felt the con- the situation was just too complicated. You know, it just uh, it just wasn't something they wanted to uh, to get involved in. I-, I don't know, but you know, we we should not read these verses lightly because you know we we find ourselves in a position where um, many of us would find ourselves where we could indeed. Um, help others quite nicely without a, a huge hardship. I couldn't help but think of the uh, example of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, that, that story, when one reads over it, it there, there's so many details. It's sort of like the story we had this morning in Sunday school. You know, we're, There's a lot of details that we would like to have and we don't. But we have enough that we can make some assumptions and we can do some reading between the line and I think reach a fairly safe conclusion. And I think the conclusion I take away from that particular reading is that I wonder if the rich man didn't feel like the crumbs that fell from his table were adequate for, for his contribution to Lazarus' state. All right? I'm not sweeping my floor. He's getting the crumbs. And, and I'm not chasing the dogs away. The dogs are allowed to lick his sores. Okay? But it's interesting to me that the, the rich man, it said, fared sumptuously. And not only did he fare sumptuously, he did it every day. Every day. And I think there's something to that. Um, now here's where we go to reading between the lines, and perhaps I shouldn't, but I'm gonna throw this out for your consideration. If the rich man, we take the word rich away. Perhaps he would have been a moderately uh, comfortable uh, middle-class Jew. And he wouldn't have fared sumptuously every day. Would he have been as responsible for Lazarus as what he was held? Now, I don't have the answer to that. But there seems to me there is some connection there about the faring sumptuously every day and, and Lazarus's state of neglect 
that when the time came that they both died, the rich man does not seem to want to have any conversation about why he shouldn't be in the place that he found himself. He just rather was more interested in going, having Lazarus go back and tell his brothers that you don't want to be where I am. And by extension, it seems like his brothers possibly were people that fared sumptuously every day as well. We might come back and just hit that just a little bit later on, but it seems like the rich man was um, consistent on extravagance rather than extending help. I'd like to read three more, uh, refer to three more verses here in the New Testament. I think uh, bring out a, a noteworthy um, thought for us. In Romans 12, we we know that chapter. It starts out how we shouldn't be conformed to the world, etc. And then um, in the last part of that chapter, it gives a lot of little short, uh, pithy phrases for us or little sentences about things that we should do as Christians because we're not conformed to the world. And one of those little verses reads like this in verse 13, distributing to the necessity of the saints given to hospitality. And again, in context of not being conformed to the world, you would have to deduct that a person that's interested in distributing to the necessity of the saints and given to hospitality, that is otherworldly thinking, all right? That's not the way the world thinks. Galatians 6.10, as we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto those who are of the household of faith. And we could go to 1 Timothy 5 and read a good chunk there, and I'm not going to, but I'm going to tell you what it says in a nutshell. There, uh, Paul's instructing Timothy that widows need to be cared for in the church, and he, first of all, saddles that responsibility on the children and grandchildren. He said they should, they should uh, ante up and get that done. But he said if they don't or if they can't, then he said it indeed becomes the... the uh, interest of the church to see that that is done. The church should take responsibility in that. If you lump those three verses together along with others in the New Testament, you can quickly understand that we as Christians should be especially interested that the fatherless, the widows, the poor, and the stranger among us in our churches, in our brotherhoods, should be especially looked after. Um, that should not be a hard thing for us to do, to look out for the welfare of the um, people that are less fortunate than us that we share spiritual um, bonds with. That, that should be pretty, pretty self-explanatory. Two more things I'd just like to, uh, to point out quickly. In chapter 6 of First uh, Timothy, this is another another passage where Paul gets on this thing about being rich in the world. He goes, charge them that are rich in the world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Well, that kind of sounds like Deuteronomy, doesn't it? Just remember, it's, it's God that gives you these things. And here's what the rich should do. They should do good. They should be rich in good works. They should be ready to distribute and willing to communicate. And if they do that, here's the result. They will lay up for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, and they will lay hold on eternal life. Well, you just, that's not hard to understand, is it? Um, my interest in sharing, my willingness to share, my 
my being rich in good works. That's the way I lay my good foundation. And uh, this whole thing about against the time to come and laying hold in eternal life, that's exactly what the rich man didn't do, right? He was more concerned about faring sumptuously every day than uh, laying hold on eternal life. Lastly here, I'm going to read in uh, Hebrews 13 too, a very familiar verse. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Drop down to verse 16 of that same chapter. But to do good and to communicate, for forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Uh, again, extremely easy to understand. Um, you know, this, this thing of entertaining strangers, people that, you know, we really don't have any, any, any uh, affinity to in any way, but, um, might be there just to, to test our, our, um, our willingness to share, our, our unselfishness, and, and so on. Well, what are some lessons that we should take home from these, these verses, these instructions here in James and, and in uh, these other verses that we have read. Well, I think there's two overwhelming uh, principles. Number one, God has a special interest in the welfare of the vulnerable and the downtrodden of the world. I mean, do I have to say that? That came out in every reading that we read, didn't it? He has a special interest in that. And principle number two, God expects his people to share that sentiment. Share that pity, share that heart for the needs of uh, those who are specifically disadvantaged around us. So, kind of like like father, like son, right? God, this is God's heart, this should be our heart. So why should this be our heart? Why is this important to us? Number one, I think it is one of the principal ways I can tell if my heart is in tune with God's heart. Is my interest in others, especially the, the, um, the, the ones that are needy around me, just as important as taking care of myself? Uh, would it be fair to say that we're all somewhat naturally selfish people? I mean, you know, doesn't our thought process go like this? You know, I kind of worked for this. You know, I deserve this. You know, this guy didn't work for it. I worked for it. That should be mine. It should be mine to, to figure out how I spend this and so on. Job, he did that when he was taking inventory of his life and he spent chapters going over, reiterating his life to his friends and arguing with God and so on. One of the things he said is, I was good to the fatherless and widows. He's like, I didn't, I didn't treat these people poorly. And he chalked that up as, as, uh, you know, something he could, he could say about himself. I think this is why the commandment that Jesus said is number two, is to love our neighbor as ourself. If, a point, if I as a person get to, can get to the point that I can say that I love you as much as I love me, I have, that's, that's a mouthful. That is, that is something that, can I be honest enough to say I'm not sure I attained that yet? And I really care about you all. But I, I, I think the Lord's still sanctifying me there. I was really glad for, for Tony's, um, I really felt, 
I felt like maybe God is more gracious than uh, than maybe uh, I deserve at times. After I, I I heard what some of the things Tony had to say last week, but that was good. But but yeah, I I, I really think that this possibly is something that we have to work with on a daily basis almost. You know, the person beside me is just as important as me, and do I see it that way? John put it this way, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother of need, and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in this man? And going back to our little story about the rich man and Lazarus, it is true that the rich man knew the law and the prophets. He did. And somehow or the other, he did not get that executed very well. And so he would have known all about the uh, the um, commands about the fatherless and widow and so on. Number two, it shows that I truly have the right perspective of my relationship with my stuff. You know, we're called to be stewards. We really don't possess anything. It's a gift from God. It's our responsibility to share it. Ephesians 4.28 reads like this, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor. Now, why should he labor? Labor for retirement? Should he, should he labor uh, so he can pay his bills? Should he labor? Well, some of these things maybe we, um, we, again, read between the lines a little bit. But the reason given for laboring is so that he can work with his hand the thing that is good and that he may have to give to him that needeth. Now, that's a good uh, a good reason to work, so that we can actually have something to give to those that have not. And I think it's important to God that we share with a willing heart. Um, Paul instructs the Corinthians about this in, in, um, in 2 Corinthians. We won't turn there, but he was, was concerned that they gave willingly. And even Ananias and Sapphira, we know that sad story, but when they came with that gift, Peter did tell them, that's your money. And you could have decided what to do with it. That was inside your prerogative. And you chose to indicate that you had a more unselfish heart than you actually have. And, and we know the end of that story, don't we? In building the tabernacle on Exodus 35, <clears throat> take ye an offering. I'm sorry, take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord. Whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it, an offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass. And when that tabernacle, when those gifts were brought together, if you remember the story, they had so much that they finally had to say, well, you can quit bringing stuff now because we we have adequate. So um, they certainly did do it with a willing heart. But there was no amount exacted on them. They said, we want you to bring out of a willing heart. God said that. All right. Number four, it also testifies that we really do trust in God and not our own resources for our daily sustenance. You know, we, we get that concept that there is really no correlation between what I possess and my provision for the future. And so when we get that, we become more willing to share our resources. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where thieves break through and steal, Jesus said. Later in Luke, he says, give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give unto your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. 
And that verse basically says God looks after us to the degree to the degree that we look out for others. And number four, it shows that we don't believe ourselves to be any better person than that person that is the most needy, the most downtrodden, the, the most repugnant, fill-in-the-blank adjective person out there. Again, Romans 12, be of the same mind one to another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. You know, it, it does us good, or it does me good, and maybe it doesn't do you good, but it does me good to consider that my life is largely not my doings. And, and I'm quite willing to admit that. <clears throat> there, there are so many things that, that have happened to me in life that as I look back, that I can't take the credit for it. I can't. I have been blessed far beyond what I deserve. And it should humble me. And I, and I hope that it does. That I could be at a vastly different spot in life had, had the, a few details of my life been a little bit different. I could be at a completely different spot. And when I, when I can grasp that, uh, perhaps that will, um, that will make me a more sharing, more interested person in others. I would like to just in closing consider this from a couple of other little angles. You know, we do live, I think it would be safe to say, maybe you would disagree with this, but I think it's safe to say that we live in a society here in North America that I can't just pop out my front door and see bedraggled fatherless and widows in, in dire need. That That's not my existence, and I would dare say probably not yours either. So this this idea that people in in straits that I could that I could help them immensely by taking them to the grocery store and buying them food. Let's put it this way: I'm not overly aware of that. I, it's not something I see commonly, and probably in other eras and in other places in the world that would have been true. One of the reasons this is is because do you realize I live on a poverty level? Now, that may be shocking to you, but when I get the, the Triton, um, the Triton um, school newsletter every quarter, the first quarter they have in there, how many people, they have this little chart there that you can count up how many people live in your household, and then you can look at your income, and depending on how that lines up, qualifies you for free lunches at your school. And I've always qualified for that. So I, apparently I'm... Part of the followers and widow class. So, you know, there you go. If you need someone to share with, I guess I would be a person. But, um, but the point of this all is that, um, we, we don't know people. But, you know, there are other needs in the world. We have people, we have a lot of people in our world that are lonely. Feel worthless. We live in a very lonely, distrustful, hurting, misunderstood kind of a world. And the societal problems that we have brought upon, I should, hopefully they have brought upon themselves, hopefully we're not speaking in first person here, from the breakdown of the home is tremendous. There are a lot of self-inflicted fatherless and widows out there because of very poor choices, choices in life. And, and it is easy for me to kind of view that with a, um, a cold heart. 
But as I, as I reflected on this, you know, I could be there too. As I mentioned just a few sentences ago, that could be my lot in life had, had my lines not fallen to me in pleasant places. And so I think this is a, this is a category of people that we could be very, uh, we could minister to perhaps more than we do. Jesus said this in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are bruised. And so um, that should be an that should be our interest as well, if that's Jesus' interest. And lastly, I think we need to be especially interested in the broad welfare of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think we are. And I, I would like to encourage us not to lose that interest. While it is not spoken to in the New Testament, the Old Testament, there are various verses that we could have turned to. We read one, there would be more we could have, that God was not delighted at all whenever, in fact, there is several verses where the children of Israel were commanded not to charge interest to their to their brothers and sisters. And that's a discussion for a different day. Um, I do know that there was times in our past that that was looked at with much more consternation than what it is today. However, let's lay that subject aside. I would certainly hope that if there are those among us that indeed fall on hard times and need monetary support from us, I would like to think that our hearts are large enough that we would see that need and we would meet it. And I, I really believe that that, is, that would describe us. I would hope that it would. I would also like to say I think it is a mark of godliness that when we are blessed beyond what we can use and what we deserve, and that's probably describes a good many of us here this morning, that we are careful not to flaunt our blessings. There are many principles in the Word of God in the New Testament that point to living simply, living frugally, and not flaunting and squandering the things that we've been given. And I think at some point there's a line that is crossed when we pass from comfortable living to luxurious living, from functional and serviceable to extravagant. And I'm not prepared here this morning to tell you where that line is, but there are times that I see things among our people and I say, that's too far. Somehow it doesn't feel right. It feels like we've gone beyond functional and into extravagant. And allow me to point back one more time to the rich man and Lazarus. Was that not part of the problem? He, he was living, the Bible says, a life of extravagance. And it was a stench in the nostrils of the Lord. And I think it should also be of concern to us beyond monetarily. When we see brothers and sisters in our, in our groups, in our church, in our congregation, that are struggling emotionally or spiritually or physically, that should move us. That should move us to engage with those people. So how are you and I doing on this test of true religion this morning? We find ourselves naturally selfish and self-centered, as I said in the beginning. I would just encourage us to allow God to chip away at that part of our hearts and um, 
And I certainly wish that for myself, that I could be that person that can look at somebody much less fortunate than I, and rather than in judgment saying, well, it could be different for, for you, to just lay that aside and to uh, to share and to care in ways that I can.